Hey, if you've got your Bibles this morning and you were to take a wild guess, I would have you open them up to the book of First Peter. Um, we're, we've been studying First Peter since the book of May. We're actually finishing it um, today. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn them to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. What we're going to do first is we're going we're to read through God's Word together. I want you to have it in front of you as I read it. Um, and then we're going to go back and we're going to kind of unpack it together. But First Peter chapter 5. You have that in front of you somewhere? You version, an old-fashioned paper, Bible, whatever you've got. You got it? You ready? Hello, is anyone alive out there? Do you have it open in front of you? Okay, thank you, Calvin. I appreciate that. I was dying up here. Tough crowd. Okay, First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, Submit yourself to your elders and all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And so, Heavenly Father, we know that this is your word. Not only that you have spoken this word, but by your spirit you are speaking through this word. So we know that you are speaking. The question this morning is whether or not we are listening. So we're praying, asking that by your spirit you would cause us to be a listening people, that our minds would be alert to understand what you're saying, our ears would be open to hear what you're saying, our hearts would be receptive to receive what you're saying that our hands and our feet would be ready to go where you were calling us to go and to do what you were calling us to do in your word. Cause us in these moments to be a listening people, knowing that by your spirit you are speaking. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So in this final chapter, First Peter chapter 5, there, there's a whole series of just amazing component pieces throughout it that it, it's great to focus on. Uh, serving uh, as an elder or a pastor in this church, those first, first four verses, amazing uh, section there. I, I've spent whole week-long seminars teaching just from those four verses. Living in humi- humility, dealing with anxiety, spiritual warfare and standing strong. There's just a number of amazing component pieces. And in fact, so much so that it's, it's tempting to break them all apart, to, to mine every last thing that we can out of them. And there's a lot there. And, and that certainly is a valid way at times to approach it. I know that I, I have. 
What I want to encourage us to try to do this morning is to hear it as Peter's first listeners would have heard it. So you have to understand this, this was a letter and it was written to these, these small churches that were scattered, oppressed throughout Asia Minor. And, and this letter would have been handwritten, passed around, copied, however it got to them. But you, you have to imagine that in one of these little towns on, a, say, a Thursday afternoon, word starts buzzing around town where folks are going to where other Christian folks are and saying, hey, we just received today in the mail... They didn't have mail. But anyway, we just received today in the mail a letter from the Apostle Peter encouraging us in our Christian faith. And we're going to be reading it tonight at 7 o'clock. you got to be there. And the word's buzzing all around town. And then that night they would gather together and then they would pray and they would prepare themselves and then they would open it and, and it would be read and they would listen to it. And they would listen to it in its entirety. Now, it's not to say that they wouldn't go back and read it again. It's not to say they wouldn't talk through parts of it. But the first way they would have encountered this letter would have been as a unit. And so the connection and the themes would have been, would have been so much more apparent to them. Many times we miss these because we take pieces out and we put them on refrigerator magnets and we, and we do little studies on, on this verse or these studies here. Thank you, Greta. Um, and these things. But sometimes, while we get the depth, we don't always catch the connections. Now, here's why I say all of this. What I want you to understand is that Peter is not clicking through like, oh yeah, there's five things I got to tell you before I sign off on this letter. His point is not a series of five disjointed topics that he wants to remind them of. But in fact, there's actually one last compelling point that he's making throughout this chapter amidst standing strong in the midst of suffering. And the point is that this relates to the elders, this uh, relates to the youngers, it relates to all of us together walking in humility, enduring anxiety, resisting our spiritual enemy. And if you focus on it as a unit, in fact, there is one common point that ties this entire chapter together. And all of this, in fact, is built upon the foundation of what we talked about last week. It's the same basic idea, but now with a series of applications throughout the church. And so, just to remind you, last week we talked about suffering. That we should not be surprised when suffering comes into our life. Sadly, it happens. It's a part of the human experience, sadly, it's a part of the Christian experience. Experience And sometimes when we are doing even nothing but right in our life, still, as a Christian, we suffer. However, when our suffering is in the name of Christ, we can welcome that, embrace that into our life, even with a sense of joy. And why in the world would we do that? Why would we embrace suffering into our life with joy? Because, Peter says, it demonstrates that we truly belong with him. We have a share with him. We are in Christ. And that means if we belong to him now, in this day of suffering, certainly we will belong to him then in that great day of glory. If I can trust Jesus to raise me up on that great day to come, then certainly I can trust him to hold me up in this day in which I'm living right now. That is where we parked it last week. Fully entrusted to our faithful creator in the midst of suffering and in view of the revelation of his glory. That was the foundation where we parked it last week. 
fully entrusted to our faithful creator in the midst of suffering even and in view of the revelation that is the appearing, the unfolding of his glory. If I can trust him to raise me up in that great day to come, certainly I can trust him to hold me up in this day in which I'm living right now. Now, I know that you probably don't get too excited usually about conjunctions, but verse 5 actually begins with a little three-letter conjunction. Un is how we say it. Now, as I recall from Schoolhouse Rock, which is how I learned most of my grammar, as I recall from Schoolhouse Rock, and specifically conjunction, junction, what's your function? The purpose of a conjunction, and correct me if I'm wrong, is hooking up phrases and words and clauses together. Now, here's why I say this, because in the NIV, which I'm reading from today, it has made a translation choice in order to smooth the verse out a little bit, just to skip that little conjunction. After all, what's three little words anyway? Now, most often, this conjunction is translated, therefore, or so then. Now, the problem for us English readers, if we're not careful, because we might not see it in our translation, is we may not recognize that Peter put a conjunction junction between chapter 419, the end of chapter 419, and chapter 5, verse 1. So, hooked together with this conjunction junction, it might go something like this. Even in the midst of suffering, I can know. That since I can trust Christ to raise me up in that great day of glory, I can trust my Creator now to hold me up in this day of suffering that I'm living in right now. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1 begins. In light of what I have just said, so then, this being the case, therefore, this is the practical difference that this should make in your lives right now. Because it begins with a conjunction junction, we know that we are supposed to connect what we have been talking about with what comes next. This is not a hard stop. Hey, I want to start talking about something new. This is a continuation of what we've been talking about. Therefore, to the elders among you, I appeal as your fellow elder. In light of what I've just said, now let me start by saying something to those of you who are elders in the church. Now, in these early churches scattered out across Asia Minor, they would have been what we call today house churches, led by one or more elders, also called pastors or overseers. At this point, nothing about these positions is professionalized in any way. There are no schools or degrees or credentials. These are simply faithful men who may be relatively new believers themselves, but they are recognized for their faith and they have stepped forward to give leadership to these fledgling little communities of faith. Now, I want you to imagine, in light of what you have learned about these churches that Peter is writing to, how hard of an assignment that would be. These small Christian churches are maligned to begin with. They are insulted. They are suspected. They are rumored about. They are the group in society and culture that it has become okay to openly hate. So it's hard enough just to be called a Christian in society, let alone to be identified as the leader of this group. Talk about setting yourself up for abuse. Could you imagine if you were nominated to be the face 
of this maligned group of Christian believers. In the words of President Lyndon Johnson in 1968, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. No, thank you. Stepping out front to to take this role was an invitation for abuse. So here's Peter's idea, getting a running start from chapter 4. Suffering is never any fun for anybody. But suffering is still part of the Christian life. But even in all of this, still we can trust our Creator. Therefore, conjunction, junction, to the elders among you, who are going to be on the front lines of taking this abuse, I appeal as a fellow elder. I know what it is to be attacked and to be used and abused for leading the church of Jesus Christ. I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will share in the glory to be revealed. Time and time again throughout this letter, Peter has linked together the idea of suffering now glory that is yet to come. I know that what I'm asking you to do is going to take courage. I know this because I'm living this reality out myself. In the midst of days of suffering, be an example of faithful ministry. Be shepherds. That word simply means uh, pastors, pastor shepherds, same thing. Be pastors of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. That's the word overseer. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain as if this is going to be some advantage for you to get ahead in some way. Eager to serve, not lording it over to those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Examples of what? Well, examples of lots of things. Examples in godly speech, in godly conduct, the kind of love, the kind of faith that is becoming for one who is following Christ. Be examples of many things. Be an example. But in the context, the most direct reference would be an example in the midst of suffering. Enduring hurt and pain in the name of Jesus. In the midst of suffering. Entrusting yourself to Jesus and continuing to lead faithfully and with joy, knowing that the chief shepherd or pastor will have your reward. Verse 4 says, and when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus is that shepherd. John 10.10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will Never fade away. And so if it ever should seem to you in the midst of your leading these little flocks that the responsibility of leading Jesus' sheep is simply not rewarding enough. The work is too hard. The demands are too many. There's just too much hurt and too little payoff. And by the way, you might be correct in that. But Jesus is coming, Peter reminds us. And his reward is with him when he comes. And if you have cared for his sheep faithfully, and if you have suffered even for his name patiently, your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. You will receive a reward of glory, and that reward will never fade away. Now, as someone who spent the last 28 years of my life as a, as a shepherd in the church, as a, as a pastor, you need to know there are many 
moments of gratification to it. It can be incredibly rewarding in so many ways. Being able to devote my life, pouring into the lives of people from the Word of God in his heart, it's an awesome privilege. And for that privilege that I have here at Bethany Bible Church, thank you sincerely. It's very profound. But yes, there are times that it is very hard. And I think that any Christian leader who is here today can can back me up on that. Sometimes it really, really, it can hurt carrying this burden. And I can hardly imagine these early shepherds, elders in Asia Minor, stepping up to the plate knowing that by doing so, they have an unmistakable bullseye on their back on the back of their families, from almost every side. And yes, there, there are the pressures and there are the burdens within the church, but there's also the mistreatment from outside the church. And any sane person would be tempted to respond to that call. If nominated, I shall not run. If elected, I will not serve. I really don't need this. This is simply too much of a high-risk, low-reward proposition. Yes, there can be suffering In following Jesus, there can be suffering in leading for Jesus. And so he says, be an example of living in joy and trusting in Jesus because he is personally bringing your true reward when he comes. Then verse 5 says, in the same way. Oh, look, it's another connection word. Likewise, we're still talking about the same idea. In the same way, you who are younger... Submit yourselves to your elders. And so he begins with a contrast between the elders who are leading the flock, presumably older, certainly more mature in their faith, and the younger ones who are following, calling them to respond to their leadership in humility. But quickly Peter expands it out by the end of verse 5, and he says, and and all of you, for that matter, clothe yourselves with humility Toward one another. In the presence of one another, be a demonstration of humility. Why? Verse 5 ends God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Consider one another more important than yourselves. Yes, submit to your leaders, but more broadly than that, live a lifestyle that is constantly deferring to one another. Be willing to bring yourself down in order that he can raise you up and do it in due time. Now, in due time, if I'm waiting for something and someone says to me, yes, 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 in due time, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like they're just putting me off eventually, but don't bother about me now. It, it, it sounds like something your parent tells you when you're a kid and you want to know when. When are we going to be there? When will I be old enough to have friends overnight? When can I have a car of my own? When will I be old enough to go out on dates in due time? In due time. That just sounds to me like not yet and please stop asking. But that word there in verse 6 doesn't mean that at all. It's a very important word. It's the word kairos. And kairos doesn't mean just sometime later down the road. It means a specifically appointed time. A specifically chosen time at a perfect chosen moment 
of consummation. In the presence of one another be a demonstration of humility. That is, even when life is hard, And even when the payoff seems too small, bring yourself low, knowing that at the perfect moment in God's plan, when he comes at that precise moment, the mighty hand of God will lift you up. The mighty hand of God is the only time in the New Testament this specific phrase is ever used. Used a lot in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the mighty hand of God always is in some way drawing attention back to God's consummate act of redemption. That is at least before the cross of Jesus Christ. But before the cross of Jesus Christ, his consummate act of redemption, his defining act of salvation was bringing his people up and out of slavery in the land of Egypt. And what brought them out? It was the mighty hand of God. So this phrase always calls to mind what God did for a suffering people, to marginalize people who were outsiders in a strange land, people who were all too familiar with pain. But in due time, that is at just the perfect moment, God remembered his covenant with him and God heard their groanings. God took notice of their suffering and by his own mighty hand, time and time again, it says, He brought them up and he led them out and he carried them through and he delivered them in to the land of promise. And God did all of that by his grace for his own people and he did it with his own mighty hand. And he did it before and he'll do it again and he did it for them and he will do it for you. So Peter says, don't be afraid to bring yourself down. God's mighty hand will raise you back up again. Don't be afraid to embrace humility. God's mighty hand in due time will repay you with honor. Verse 7 says, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. What reason in the world would they have for anxiety? Well, being canceled for the faith being persecuted for following Jesus, being blacklisted for being Christians, being maligned for living for their values, for starters. Those might be reasons for anxiousness. Many of us have our own reasons for anxiety. Maybe our reasons are the same as these early Christians. Maybe ours are different. But we know what the experience feels like. Anxiety. It's like these, this suffocating sensation that we're not going to make it. We can't make the deadlines. We can't live up to the expectations. We can't get out from under the debt. Sometimes some of us experience it and we don't even understand why we feel the way we do, but we feel literally like we may die. Anxiety, worries, Whatever is on any given person's list may be different from anyone else's, but according to Jesus, the greatest danger of our anxiety is that it threatens to choke out the faith that is inside of us. Jesus is the one who most often uses this word. Jesus said, Luke chapter 8, and as they go on their way, they are choked with anxieties. Same word. As they go on their way, they are choked with anxieties. They have the word in them. But by these anxieties, it's choked out in the riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. 
Jesus said, Luke chapter 21, the Son of Man is returning in a cloud with power and great glory. Therefore, he said, be on the guard, be alert and ready, and do not be weighed down with wrong living or with the anxieties, same word, anxieties of life. Whatever it is that causes the anxiety in our life, according to Jesus, the greatest danger is that it threatens to choke out the faith that is inside of us, and as a result, on that great day, we may not be ready. Jesus is coming back again. So cast all your anxieties on him. Jesus is coming back again. Release your worries to him. If you get knocked down in your faith, he will lift you back up again. If you lose for him, you will receive back many times as much. If you are humbled by his mighty hand, he will exalt you. Jesus is coming for you. He cares for you. He can be trusted to carry your anxieties. One more application, same basic idea. So verse 8 says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in your faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. We've talked about this. Some of our brothers and sisters in the world at this very moment are experiencing far worse kinds of suffering for following Jesus, and we can even imagine. So we know that whatever pain we are going through, in the name of Jesus, we are not alone in this. Others have gone before us, and they've endured. Others are going through more at this very moment, and they are enduring. In the face of grave spiritual danger, be fearless in your resistance against your enemy. Now we need to remember this. No matter how maligned, dismissed, or even persecuted way we may be, they out there, that is not our enemy out there. Our spiritual enemy is the devil who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, who's looking for someone to devour. It is okay to hate him and everything he stands for. It is okay to wish for, to work for, to pray for his destruction. But they out there, They are not our enemies, and we can never allow ourselves even for one second to begin thinking, acting, intending that way. They out there, they're lost. They are deceived. They are held captive, but they are still among those for whom Christ died and part of the world that God so deeply loves. Keep straight who your enemy is in this fight. It's not them. Keep straight who your enemy is in this fight and stand firm against him. Verse 10 says, and the God of all grace. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. In the face of grave spiritual danger, be fearless. In your resistance against your enemy, knowing that the God of all grace will cause you to be steadfast. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is how the story is going to end for you. He's going to cause you to stand strong in his presence, steadfast. And it's important for you to remember that, especially when there are days in your spiritual journey when it feels futile. 
On those days when it seems to you like it's only a matter of time, and I know you say, yeah, I, I know I can fight it today. And I probably could push against it tomorrow too, but who am I kidding? It's only a matter of time until I go down. Maybe I should just lay down now. That's when the promise of the God of all grace comes running through. Even if it doesn't feel like it right now, there is purpose in your resisting. There is purpose in your struggle, knowing that in that great and final day, he's going to lift you up and he is going to make you steadfast and strong at the end of this great race. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the point that Peter wants to unmistakably drive home as he closes this letter to these dearly loved sisters and brothers in the faith, knowing that they are suffering, knowing that they're paying the price every single day for following Jesus, knowing that it's hard, knowing that they are tempted, whether they are leaders or followers, young or old, knowing they are tempted every single day to lay down and die to give up the fight. This is the boy. Keep living and looking for that day, because it is coming at just the perfect time. The day is coming. It is the Kairos moment of all history. It will not happen one second too early. It will not come one second too late. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, keep the commandment, stay in the fight without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which will God will bring about at the Kairos, the perfectly appointed moment, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That day is coming, the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and who is the Lord of lords. What is it that is going to get you through suffering in this day? It's when you are looking and leaning and living for that day. That is the day, that is the perfectly appointed moment when the chief shepherd appears, he says. And he's going to bring with him his reward in that day. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Oh, and not just for me, but also to all those who have loved His appearing. What is going to get you through suffering in this day? When the sacrifices simply seem too great. And the payoff simply seems too small. When you're looking and you're living and you're leaning towards that day. When the chief shepherd appears who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That is the day when faith becomes sight. Because we're looking and leaning and living for that day when sharing with Jesus, when being in Christ, when being united with him means being united with him in unthinkable and unending glory. The common thread, you see, in all of this is that there is coming a great and glorious day and we are to be living in this day in light of that day. 
And so whether we're leaders or followers, younger, older, under attack or living in victory, we can endure knowing that whatever life throws at us in this day, because we're living with joy in light of that day. This is the day of suffering. That is the day of glory. This is the day of humility. That is the day exalted. This is the day of sacrifice. That is the day of reward. This is the day of struggle. That is the day of complete victory. That is the day of your very best life. And no offense to whoever wrote the book about living your best life now, because I really do hope that life right now for you is really good. I do. That you're blessed and fulfilled and overwhelming, overflowing with goodness. I really do. I'm just saying that there is no way, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that what you are experiencing right now is your best life. Your best life starts on that day. That is the day when you will see your Savior face to face. That is the day when faith becomes sight. That is the day when every tear is wiped away. That is the day when there is no more mourning, crying, pain, or death. That is the day when the devil is defeated. That is the day when sin is no more. That is the day when you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That is the day. And if you believe in Jesus, I promise you that your best life begins on that day. And from that day forward, it will never, ever end. And it will not come one second too early. It will not come one second too late. But it will come in the perfect moment of time in all of humanity. What's going to get you through suffering in this day? It's when you're leaning and living and looking towards that day. Because that is the day of your very best life. Heavenly Father, you know all the struggles that we bring with us here today. All the causes we would have for anxiety. Worry. Things that would choke out our faith, leave us defeated. Wanting to just lay down and die and put up the white surrender flag. Now you know all of the reasons. Some of us listening right now, we, we have experienced anxiety this week. Some of us have laid down and died and surrendered this week. Some of us have fallen down and not gotten back up this week. You know who we are, so we won't try to put on any airs in front of you. We're asking God that you would give us the power by your Holy Spirit in the name of Christ to endure, to overcome, even receiving it with joy, whatever hardship is coming into our life this week in the name of Christ, knowing that this only proves that we belong to you. And Lord, we know that you are going to come again and you're going to keep your word to bring your reward with you to gather those who are your own. And we pray for it. We pray that it would be soon. Perhaps even today, Lord. But we know that not one second too early, not one second too late, you will keep your promise. And I pray that when the day comes, we'll be ready, that we will love your appearing and not shrink back in shame. We will love your appearing. For you'll find us living in joy in your name. And we look forward to that day of our very best life then. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.